Father, we do thank you for your word, and uh, I pray for us today that you would grant us the uh, fullness of your spirit, that your spirit would teach us the word today, speak to our minds and our hearts, illuminate us, um, instruct us, encourage us, rebuke us as you see the need. We thank you, God, that uh, your word is alive, it is living, it is quick, it is sharp. We ask that your word today would do its work and accomplish your will. We do ask your blessing on Gideons, uh, both in the U.S. and around the world. We thank you, God, that your, your word does not return void. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open, if you will, to Mark. Um, I'm going to open with this text, but uh, not really exegeted per se, but we'll come back to it at the end. We will look at a lot of different scriptures. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus says this. Now the story is, he's having a private conversation with his disciples. He's uh, kind of gauging public opinion. Who do people say that I am? Um, some think he's John the Baptist, etc. Uh, <clears throat> he begins to teach them. It says here in Mark 8, he began to teach them the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now, it's striking that he says he began to do this, meaning before this he was not doing this. When you look at the Gospels, what you see is in Jesus' ministry, there's a tur- there comes a turning point in which it was uh, uh, clear that he was being consistent uh, progressively resisted by the Jewish leadership and many of the people. And um, at, at a certain point in his ministry, he began to highlight the fact that he was going to be crucified. And this was like shocking to, his, uh, to the disciples. So what happens here, you know, is Peter then uh, decides that he knows better than Jesus. And it says in 32, and he spoke this word openly, then Peter took him, meaning Jesus, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. I love this verse. This is so good. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. So you got Jesus and Peter rebuking each other. This is awesome. And he said, and he, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan. Now that's a rebuke, isn't it? For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And when he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. As I said, I'm going to come back to this text. I just wanted to kind of use it as an intro to talk about Jesus and the Scriptures. Since we were having Gideon share today, of course their ministry is the Scripture. And their ministry is premised on a very simple premise that the Scripture is the Word of God. Amen? The Scripture is the Word of God. Not part of the Scripture. All of the Scripture is the Word of God. Was 
And so the question I would ask is, um, is this the opinion of Jesus, or is this something that Gideon made up? Is this the opinion of Jesus, or is this something that Christians wanted to believe? What did Jesus say about the Scripture? Uh, let's look and see, what did Jesus say about the Scripture? Now, we can only look at a little bit because of time, because Jesus uh, talked about the Scripture a lot. He quoted it, he referenced it, he alluded to it. Uh, but we're just going to look at, at, at a, a few scriptures. Just starting in the, the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew, you know, the, the, uh, the account of Jesus being tempted, right? So the devil comes to uh, Matthew 4. The devil uh, begins to tempt Jesus. And he says in 4.3, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. And he answered and said, it's my opinion. Now, he answers and says, but it is written. It is written. Uh, this is the perfect tense, which means it was written and continues to be written. In other words, it could be translated, it stands written. Okay? It stands written. And it will continue to be written. And of course, then he quotes Deuteronomy. He's tempted again. How does he respond? It is written. He's tempted again. How does he respond? It is written. In other words, the, the, Jesus quotes uh, the Old Testament here, in, the, in this case Deuteronomy, as authoritative as the Word of God. Now, it's striking is that um, Jesus' Bible was the Old Testament. We have to remember that, right? At the time that he was alive... We didn't have the New Testament yet. It was, that was future. The Gospels were in progress because they were his life. But the Old Testament, it is written. Look at Matthew 5. I said we're just going to look through. And I'm using Matthew because many of these passages are repeated in Mark and Luke. Uh, Matthew 5, Jesus says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Not only one letter, one smallest letter, but one little cursive mark, he's saying, all will be fulfilled. Referring to the Old Testament scriptures. Look at Matthew 22. Verse 31, here in, uh, well, really in this whole discussion in Matthew 22 about, you know, what, uh, well, there's so many. Okay, let's start here. Starting in 23, Jesus is having a debate with the Sadducees. And at the end of his debate, uh, he says this in verse 31. He says, but concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? Saying... And then he quotes the Old Testament, Genesis, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. In other words, Jesus says when <clears throat> this Genesis was God speaking, okay? Well, that's, that's clearly the doctrine of inspiration. Then in this whole discussion about the law in 34 through 40, Jesus assumes the validity, the divine authority and validity of the Old Testament law, and then he sums it up in saying that all the law hinges on love for God and love for our neighbor. 
Then in in 41, he he has this discussion about Messiah. He says, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, what do you think about the Christ, the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And he says to them, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord? And then he quotes Psalm 110. Uh, as it says, I think, in Mark or Luke, is, is, it reads, um, then how does David by the Spirit or in the Spirit? In other words, David, he's saying that the, the, the Davidic author, number one, he acknowledges the Davidic authorship of Psalm 110, but then says it was inspired, it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Look at um, Matthew yeah, Matthew 13. I've got so many scriptures, I'm trying to hurry through here. And this, this is just an example here of, of uh, Jesus quoting scripture. This is the, uh, in the context of the sower and the seed, and he's asked the question by his disciples, why do you, when you talk to us, you're explaining things, but when you're talking to the crowds, you're using parables. Why are you doing that? And then he says uh, this, he says, 13 of 13, 13, 13. Therefore I speak to them in parables because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. And then he quotes the full passage. This is a common thing that Jesus does where he just quotes the Old Testament and he says this is being fulfilled. Matter of fact, in the book of Luke, in chapter 4, if you want to turn there with me, when Jesus first comes out of the, uh, the wilderness after being tempted, he goes into the temple. So this is really his first public address. After he was baptized, after he was tested, his first public address, what does he do? Well, here in Luke 4, here's what he does. It says uh, in 16, And so he came to Nazareth, 4.16 of Luke, where he had been brought up, And as his custom was, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read, as his custom was. In other words, Jesus did this on a regular basis. Jesus went to church, as we say today. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, quote, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, etc., 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 and he quotes the passage from Isaiah. And then, in 20, it says, He closed the book, he gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all who were in the synagogues were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This is a, a common thing that Jesus did where he quoted the scriptures in such a way that he acknowledged that they were true and that they were authoritative. As a matter of fact, many of them being fulfilled in the sight of the people as he was, as he was addressing them. Very common phenomenon. Look at Mark chapter 7, where Jesus is showing, contrasting uh, the, the word of God to the traditions of men. In Mark chapter uh, 7, did I say 7? Yeah. Yep, that's right, 7. Okay, this is where the, the Pharisees come to him and, and challenge him, you could say rebuke him, because his disciples or not following what's called the tradition of the elders. Okay? Verse 2, Now when they saw that some of his disciples eat bread and defiled with defiled, that is, unwashed hands, they found fault. 
But the Pharisees and all the Jews did not eat unless they washed their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. So their tradition was a tradition. It wasn't scripture. It wasn't in in the Old Testament. It was a custom that evolved, supposedly from biblical premises. But the point is, it was extra biblical. Verse 5, then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? And he answered and said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? Again, he's quoting scripture, quoting the prophets. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Four, notice verse eight, laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. And he said, all too well, you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your traditions. So here they were um, supposedly upholding the word when in fact he's saying, you're rejecting the word by your very traditions. Okay, so Jesus is, is uh, really defending the scriptures, if you will, against the uh, misuse by the Pharisees. And then he says in verse 13, he sums it up and says, uh, by their traditions, and he mentions another tradition, he quotes the, the fifth commandment, verse 13, they were making the word of God of no effect through their traditions, okay? So Jesus refers to the Old Testament twice as the command of God, and once here as the word of God. The Old Testament, the word of God. Luke 24. You like reading all these scriptures? Good for you. Clean your brain out. Luke 24. This is post-resurrection. Jesus had already been crucified, buried. Now he was resurrected. We have the account of on the Emmaus Road. Two of Jesus' disciples are walking along. They're, they're in despair. Jesus had died. <clears throat> as far as they knew, he was dead and gone, still in the grave, never to be seen again. Their hopes of, of deliverance, political deliverance, their hopes of Messiah were dashed to the ground. So he shows up in such a way that he didn't appear to be who he was. He had this ability uh, after the resurrection to kind of morph kind of cool, you know, when you think of it. You see this stuff in movies now. It's like, Jesus did this a long time ago. So he shows up, and he's talking with them, and they don't recognize him. And then in verse 25, he says, where after they say, verse 20, where after they say, and we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today's the third day since these things have happened. In other words, he's been dead three days. He's gone. It's, It's over. The hope's over. And then in verse 25, then he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Awesome. Moses and all the prophets. He starts, Moses means Genesis. He starts in Genesis and just takes them through an awesome Bible study. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there? Right? Affirming the truthfulness and reliability of all the scripture from Moses all the way through the prophets. So, then he ends up uh, 
revealing himself to them, then he appears to the other disciples. Then he gives, this is the Lukean version, the, no, Lucan. Lucan version? Lucan. Not Lucan house. Luke. Forget it. This is Luke's version of the Great Commission in verse 44. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. The, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, or the law and the prophets, these were summary phrases for all of the Old Testament scripture, which Jesus recognized as the commandment of God, as the word of God, as a word which was being fulfilled and which would inevitably be fulfilled. Then he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. The scriptures, amen? Jesus said in John 10.35 that the scripture cannot be broken. Cannot be broken. John 17, and we'll... we'll uh, yeah, just go to John 17. This is actually before his crucifixion where he's praying to the Father for the church, for, the, for his disciples and for the church. And in John 17, uh, a number of times through here, he refers to God word, God's word. Um, verse 6, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And then he says, well, I was with them in verse 12, I'm sorry. Well, I was with them in the world. I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition. Why? That the scripture might be fulfilled. Verse 14, I have given them your word, but this is the, the uh, clincher, folks. Verse 17, the, God the Son says to God the Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. I don't know if you uh, memorize Bible verses, but you should start and start with that verse. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. It couldn't be any more clear, and we can look at literally dozens and dozens more scriptures where it's obvious that Jesus believed in the veracity and the authority, the reliability of the, the scriptures, and in his case, the Old Testament, because that was the scripture at the time, right? It seems very clear. So how do we get this phenomenon, which we do have, in which we have Christians who uh, want to profess that they are Christians and want to profess that they believe in Jesus, but they don't actually believe the things that Jesus said. I mean, it's a common phenomenon, and even in evangelical churches. So we believe in Jesus, and we are Jesus followers, but uh, we really don't believe the things that Jesus taught, and especially what Jesus taught about the Scripture. Because what you find is that the, the departure from the faith, that, which is alluded to, while the church is growing everywhere around the world except America, 
It's uh, Europe, Western Europe and America. It's rooted in a departure from the scripture as God's word. This is the foundation. Jesus said to the Father, your word is truth. The church says your word eh, is kind of somewhat true sometimes. And so the foundation has been eroded in confidence in the word of God, even though at the same time there's an ongoing profession of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Uh, You really can't do this, but it's being done. So two questions, how is it being done and then why is it being done? Well, the reason it's being done is because Jesus, by endorsing the entire Old Testament, he endorsed the embarrassing parts of the Bible. Because let's be honest, uh, there are portions of Scripture of which Christians are embarrassed. Can I name a few? Okay, I'm glad glad you gave me permission. One is the creation account. Now, the creation account's been under attack for hundreds of years, especially since uh, the the mid-1800s when Darwin's theory came out. And Christian says, oh my Lord, I guess we've been wrong all these years. I guess the Bible isn't really true because some guy with a long beard out in some island said it, was, it wasn't true. And so the church began to freak out, literally. Began to change his theology on Genesis. But the problem is, Jesus endorsed Genesis. Let me just give you one example. Go to Matthew 19. Book of Matthew 19. Now, the the question here Jesus is dealing with is marriage and divorce. He was, was, they're trying to put him in a bind, trying to trick him by asking him about divorce. 19.3, and the Pharisees came to him, testing him and saying, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any just reason, or for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, have you not read that he who made them in the beginning made them male and female? And said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. So Jesus uh, here in Mark also, and in Luke, refers to the Genesis account of the creation of Adam and Eve. You getting this? Jesus believed in Adam and Eve. Jesus said that the the creation account of Adam and Eve was the foundation for for a proper understanding of marriage. Okay, Proper understanding of marriage was rooted in creation. Mark 13... uh, Mark 13, okay, this is where Jesus is talking about the, the last days. He says in verse 19 of Mark 13, he says, For in those days there will be tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the creation which God created until this time, nor shall ever be. Again, referring to creation. This is a great example of when you read your Bible, you have to really pay attention. Because you can read this and it doesn't dawn on you, Jesus is endorsing the early chapters of Genesis because you're so focused on the end times, Right? He, he was, but he does. It's exactly what he does. He refers to creation, the creation uh, uh, which is recorded in Gen- the early chapters of Genesis. And it's many examples like this. 
So Jesus believed in, in the early chapters of Genesis, which many Christians today basically say it's mythology. It's, it's not, we shouldn't really believe it literally. But I believe in Jesus. I just don't believe what he taught about creation. Well, then you have, of course, Noah. Now, you should be sharing the gospel with your friends, right? should be a regular thing. So people should be regularly saying to you, what? You believe in, like, Noah and Jonah and that stuff? Common objection when you share the gospel. So Jesus, uh, go to Matthew 24. Here in Matthew 24... Here's what Jesus says. He's, uh, again, this is an end times context, and he's exhorting uh, his followers, that means us, to watchfulness, to be ready. And he says, verse 36 of Matthew 24, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only, 37. But as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away as also will, as also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Jesus refers to Noah. He refers to the days of Noah. He refers to the flood. He refers to the ark as historical events that he believed in. Is that clear? Now, uh, look at Matthew 12. Here's the other thing that the, the, the scoffers want to scoff at, and that's Jonah, right? Do you really believe that a whale swallowed a guy? Okay, I read an article this morning. Scientists are now telling us that octopi, that's plural for octopus, they're actually aliens. And I'm weird for believing the Bible? It takes more faith to believe in some of these scientific theories than it does in the Scripture. Okay, so Matthew 12, verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Of course, this is after he'd healed multitudes, fed multitudes, but you know, we still want to see a sign. Okay. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. So here Jesus uh, not only endorses the historicity of Jonah and Nineveh, the city of Nineveh, he, he ties it in with his mission, his own uh, death, burial, and resurrection. So Jesus, and I could talk about other items, but Jesus believed in the, what we call the uh, embarrassing parts of the Bible. Well, what happens is that puts you in a dilemma, doesn't it? It creates a dilemma. So, do we believe in Jesus? And if we believe in Jesus, do, 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 how do we believe in Jesus and not be embarrassed? How do we believe in Jesus and not believe what Jesus believed? That's a dilemma, isn't it? 
And unfortunately, many Christians want to resolve that dilemma by, by different means. One of which is that, one of which is, is they say, well, you know, uh, some say Jesus, um, Jesus really didn't believe that stuff, but he was accommodating his teaching to what the people believed. So he really didn't believe it. There's one thing about Jesus you can count on. He was always truthful. If there's one thing Jesus hated more than anything, it was lying and hypocrisy. He hated appearing one thing and being another more than anything. As a matter of fact, he said not only that God's word was the truth, he said, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. And then he said, I am the truth. A man who would say these things is not a man who would accommodate. As a matter of fact, much of what Jesus did, we looked at the passage in Mark where he challenged the, the tradition of the elders. If he wanted to accommodate, why didn't he accommodate that? It wasn't one big deal, they just washed their hands. Why not accommodate? Because in principle, it was a violation of the word of God. And Jesus would never, never accommodate error and falsehood. He always stood for truth because he was the truth. And that's what got him killed. The fact that he stood for the truth. And by standing for the truth, he exposed the falsehood and hypocrisies of those in power. Jesus didn't accommodate. So you're only left with a couple options. And really the options are Jesus was right or Jesus was wrong. So Jesus... I mean, if Jesus knew this was false, but said it anyway just to accommodate, well, then he's a deceiver. If he doesn't know the Old Testament was false, but supported it, then Jesus was deceived. And the other, only other option is, Jesus was actually right. And that what he taught was true. That's our dilemma, if you will. C.S. Lewis says this when he was talking about how men wanted to believe in Jesus but not really embrace him as, as God. Well-known quote, you've heard it before. He says, I'm trying here, and we're going to conclude with this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, meaning Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing a man must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil himself. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. Amen? And the same is true, not only about Jesus' claim to who he was, but Jesus' claim to what he believed regarding the Scripture. 
We don't have the option of saying Jesus was a great teacher and then reject his teaching. And you certainly can't say, I believe Jesus is the Savior of the world, and I believe Jesus is my Savior. I just don't believe what he taught. We don't have that option. So we either take Jesus in his totality, we take the Jesus as given us in Scripture and all that he taught, or we don't take him at all. Amen? Those are our options. And that's what Jesus made clear in our opening passage, which we read which we're going to read as we we conclude, back in Mark chapter 8. If you want to turn there with me, in Mark chapter 8. Verse 34, when he had called the people to himself, with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, But whoever loses his life for, notice, my sake and the gospels, they're inseparable. Me and the gospel will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Verse 38, for whoever is ashamed of me and, notice, and my words... In this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. We cannot cannot separate Jesus from his words. If we profess Jesus, we profess what Jesus professed. If we believe in Jesus, we believe in the things that Jesus believed. And as followers of Jesus, we believe them and embrace them and we preach them and we share them. And we are not ashamed of Jesus or his word. We are not ashamed of the word of God. Amen? Now, you may not understand early parts of Genesis or you you may not understand the flood account or, or Jonah. These, Well, you know what? The objections that you encounter in your conversation with people are rooted in ignorance, and I don't mean that as an insult to people. But there is so much, quote, evidence supporting the veracity of Scripture, it's astounding. It's astounding. All of the objections are answerable, and if if you have concerns, do your homework, and you will get answers. You will get answers. Jesus said this. He says that he that wills or is willing to do his will will know the doctrine. He will know the teaching. If you're willing to embrace the truth and seek the truth, you will find the truth. Amen? Let's stand and pray. I want to thank you for, your, for the courage you displayed when you were on the earth as you um, challenged those who were distorting the commandment of your Father, that you stood on the word of the Father, that you stood on the Scriptures. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that um, we are called to follow you, even if that involves criticism or ridicule. And Lord, We believe in you, and we believe in your words. We believe in you, and we believe in your gospel. 
And we thank you, Lord, that your teaching is a sure foundation, a solid rock. And as you taught us, when the storms come, that if our life is built on the rock of your teaching, our house will stand. I pray that you'd make us as a people mighty in your word, that we would read it, meditate upon it, that we would uh, study it, know how to give an answer to everyone that asks of the hope in us. And we ask that your word would transform us, Jesus, into your image, that we would reflect you to a lost and dying world. We thank you for our guests today. We ask your blessing again on the Gideons and their work and a blessing on your word here and around the world. And we pray these things, Jesus, in your name. And God's people said, amen. amen.